the, the significant thing for anybody that wants to go from talented amateur to professional, really in any sort of creative field is what do I already do that I like? And then what does the audience need? Because when you're telling a story at a high level, it's as intimate as writing a, a journal. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dalski. And I'm Rudy Salo. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with the efforts to live a better life, self-improvement, learn some stuff. Right, Rudy? <laughs> that was, it's good. It's good. You're doing, you're doing better. Every, <laughs> single, you. every single time hey, you, every single time you say that over and over again. Key. That's you, key. You know what, Gwen? You know, one of the greatest ways to work on self-improvement, and I really believe this, no matter what expert you talk to, mm-hmm. everybody says, well, writing will help you self-improve. And, you know, a lot of people like to do that with journaling. Journaling is supposed to be a really big thing on self-improvement keeping track of things, keeping track of uh, your daily life. I couldn't agree more that writing is a part of self-improvement. In fact, I recently, I just penned an article today that's going to be published in this. um, I was on a podcast that was called the Relatable Voices Podcast, and there's this magazine corollary to it. And I was asked to pen an article. And I wrote an article about how screenwriting helped me explore my past as an Arab American growing up in Orange County in the 1990s. As I was going through that process of screenwriting, I really actually got to know myself better. And I got to know my fears and I got to know the things that I dealt with. It was a very therapeutic process. I'm not saying that you know, get into screenwriting for therapy purposes. But I'm saying writing is, I think, one of the quintessential things that you do for self-improvement. And I'm very excited about the guest on this episode, Brooks Elms. He's a WGA well-known screenwriter. He's a fantastic guest. He agrees with me 100% about the power of creative writing and happiness, the the connection. When you really want to be happy, writing and self-exploring is a big part of that. I think we do have a fair amount of writers and filmmakers and, and people that are interested in that art form. And I think they'll be really excited for this episode. It's a great interview. It really is. We learn so much because you're right. The writing process is a form of exploration. It's part of living well. It's when you are learning what you didn't know you didn't know. It fits right in with this idea of how are we pursuing a good life. And uh, yes. Speaking of which, when you're talking about learning what you know you didn't know, when you're really screenwriting and you're getting to the minds of these characters or if your character has a particular profession, the amount of research that you have to do to bring legitimacy to the page is incredible. Screenwriting really is so much about research. To bring street cred and believability to a screenplay and, you know, ergo to the screen, the amount of research that you have to go into areas that you you probably don't know about, right? It's incredible. And we, we touch upon that a little bit um, on this episode. Yeah. 100% ties into good as in the details and what we're all about. And one of the things I love about it is that when you start to appreciate all that goes into screenwriting, that process, and if you do, any of our listeners, if you fancy trying it out yourself, it gives you more of an appreciation and an enjoyment of when you're watching film because you can really see all of that work that goes into it, all of the considerations. And writing is also not just self-reflective, but it's also part of enhancing empathy, of being more observant and appreciative of the world, to pay attention to all the senses and the way people react. That's one of the things I really love about it. A hundred percent. And Rudy, are you drinking your magic mind potion? You know, I am. Elixir. Every, I'm so proud that we have a sponsor that somebody gave us a try and it's something that 
quite frankly, I needed. We're like on four days straight, right? Four days? That's right. About four, maybe five days. This might be day... Actually, this is day seven for me. And it's been helpful. I drink it every morning with my coffee. If you know anything about matcha, it's mostly a matcha based drink that's supposed to help you concentrate and focus and start off your day. And I have not been sleeping very well. That has nothing to do with magic mind. That just has to do with how busy I am and been going crazy. So it has, it has been helping me. I don't know about you, but it has been helping me so far. Oh, I love it. It's tastes good. It's an easy shot and it also, it's what I am drinking now before I sit down to prep for my classes and to edit the podcast and do all the research. And it is magical, magic mind. Perfect. And we will link this in the show notes for any of our listeners if they want to get in touch and try it out for themselves. And we will give you updates on how we are doing with magic mind. And we have a discount code too. Details 14 for 20% off of your order. Okay. Let's talk screenwriting with Brooks Elms. Brooks, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Tell our listeners what you do and give us kind of a you know brief couple of thoughts about your background and why it is you wanted to come on to the podcast. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, well, I started making movies with my friends in high school. A buddy came up and was like, hey, we want to make, you want to make a karate movie? And I was like, oh my God, yeah, that sounds great. And I we loved it. Then we'd show it to our friends. Uh, they, they loved it. And that was I was hooked. From there, I went to NYU Film School. I wrote, directed, and produced some independent features after that. Um, the last probably 10, 15 years, I focused more on screenwriting. Uh, in the last couple of years, I was teaching a class at UCLA Extension about screenwriting. And that was fun, but I was there's another side of me that's really into personal growth. And so I was like, well, because of the work I was doing, just volunteering in, in, in this men's group, and just for the curiosity of it, I knew that there's a capacity to go really deep with people when you talk about personal growth stuff. So that plus what I was already teaching, plus you know, professional screenwriter as well, all that came together with this sort of coaching model. So I'm actually, in addition to being a working uh, Hollywood screenwriter, I'm a life coach for screenwriters. So I'm fascinated with every facet of that game in particular, but even more broadly in creativity uh, and sort of why people get blocked, uh, how they thrive, what's going on in a way. So we, I can take like sort of big concepts and make them really concrete and simple so that people get actionable results. And I, I love it. And to me, like when I'm Anything I'm doing feels similar. So whether I'm writing a screenplay for a big audience or if I'm coaching somebody or if I'm doing the marketing, whatever I'm doing, it feels it feels like it comes from me. I love it. <laughs> I got to tell you, even with that introduction, I could already sense, and I knew this from our first communications, a kinship, if you will. On prior episodes of Good is in the Details, I've, I've discussed my own path back to creativity. So I'm a lawyer, as I mentioned before this, and uh, I'm a partner in a law firm. Before I went to law school, I was a musician. Um, I was a musician for eight years. I was in a lot of punk rock bands. But when I went to law school, I made the decision to put down the creative side of me. And I said, I got to go all in. If I'm going to be taking out this massive amounts of student loans, I definitely need to be as successful as a lawyer as humanly possible. And I did that. Graduated law school, worked in law firms, dedicated my life to the practice of law was lucky enough to make partner. And you'd think, oh, I made partner, I made it, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's a whole other side episode and discussion. <laughs> but I was actually miserable. Very, very, very unhappy. Yeah. And I did some soul searching and I realized the whole creative side of me that I had tried to quash 
was very angry with me. Because if you're a creative person, and I believe every person is a creative person. Sure. Like you, I mean, as a child, I grew, my, my best friends uh, and I used to make movies, uh, videotape movies. We used to, all we did was read books. Then we joined bands. I did some acting as a child. I literally tried to kill the creative side and made me miserable. Eventually, after taking some classes and everything, I wound up in UCLA extension, a feature film screenwriting program. I graduated from there in 2018 and all of us, not all of a sudden over a course of a couple of years after writing some screenplays, writing some books and then getting into acting, all of a sudden I'm happy. And then guess what? My success level as a lawyer blows, right. blows up. <laughs> success really started to come once I was happy. That's right. And that's where everything that you're talking about here and what we're going to talk about in this episode, where the two need to be married. Do you work with other professionals that are, you know, do, let's say do screenwriting on the side, but have a similar story? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's really fascinating. And that's exactly what happened too. So, so I was a professional screenwriter for a while and it was fine. But again, there was a whole other, for me, that's obviously super creative, but there was a whole other side of me, that personal growth side. And also I have a sports side, like I, I played soccer in college. So the program that I create is, is almost like a, like an elite level college division one program, like Duke or UCLA or whatever. It's like that, it's modeled after that, right? I, I find the best people I can and I put them together in like this sort of community. And so those three things together <laughs> they, just, they make my like soul shine, you know? So when I was just writing screenplays professionally, it wasn't quite enough. So kind of like you were, you had one side of yourself that was doing okay. Another part that you'd kind of quashed. Once you sort of let both of those things out more then drink, then everything, you get all the things. So that's exactly what happened to me. And it started first with an existential shift. I have a accountability partner who's a TV writer and he got some gig on a TV show and he this was probably three years ago, four years ago. And he was like, yeah, you know, I got this gig. And he's like, I didn't like struggle for it. It just kind of came to me. It was really easy. And I was like, that's, that's an option. Like doing things the easy way, as opposed to grinding and hustling is even like a, an option and B possibly could work. I couldn't, I couldn't get it, but it led to a really significant exploration into some of these law of attraction ideas, you know, and not the sort of the ones that are sort of far out in that sense, but just that idea of showing up a certain way, as opposed to going, if I'm dealt a good hand, then I'm going to feel good. If I'm dealt a bad hand, then I'm going to feel bad. The existential shift is I'm going to feel good because I exist and I'm happy and I'm just me. And then from that happy place, I'm going to go and help people in my own way. And that shift, and I was, I did it in a very deliberate way, but that opened up everything. And then I started seeing things differently. And that's how the nexus of my three greatest passions really came together into this program. So that's exactly what I teach people in my screenwriting programs, because everybody is doing it. Everybody has the capacity to do it. Like you said, everybody's creative in some way. And then how they realize it is unique to them. And so what I do in my screenwriting group, <laughs> I teach the nuts and bolts of how to write screenplays at a professional level, but more significantly, I use these personal growth modalities to allow them to kind of get in touch with what they care most about in life anyway. And then I help them get all the things. And as they're more happy outside of their life as a screenwriter, they, be, they actually become a better screenwriter and can write better screenplays. Why? Because screenwriting is about life lessons and demonstrating how a protagonist does something the wrong way and learns to do it the right way. I'm teaching the nuts and bolts stuff, but a lot of the stuff I'm teaching really is personal growth stuff. Practically what happens is there's a lot of people that come into my program, like one woman, her day job is at NASA. So like hmm. pretty cool day job, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd say I'd say so. That's so so you know, there's another guy who's a, a deacon of the church 
and he's been telling stories to his congregation. And so when I, he came into my program, he was already an experienced storyteller, but now I showed him how to take those same skills and actually, you know, show them how to be a high level screenwriter. So I love working with people that can transfer. And then some people are just like they're screenwriting, but they're unhappy with their day job. And then I can go the other way with them and say, well, what is it that you love about screenwriting? You can also allow to be part of your life outside of it. Whichever way we go, I can help them move forward and get more of what they want in life. And as they do that, they become better screenwriters because screenwriting is about life lessons. Yeah, I love the the creative process, I think is so fascinating in that when we look at, let's say in museums and we're classifying man as a rational animal and here are all the tools, look at all of the tools. And we pause to think about the rational side, but if you look at the tools closely, there's artwork etched in them, that mm-hmm. that is also what makes us human. And I think one of the reasons why there's this levity or this feeling good is because creativity forces you to pause and observe. I mean, I know for me in writing philosophy, I'm using one area of my brain that's logic, but whenever I've tried to do creative stuff, it's harder for me, but I love it because it forces me to pay attention to all five senses and feelings. And it just brings me to the present moment. I love that. That reminds me of the strange thing of like going to a museum and you're just, you're just kind of walking around looking at stuff, but you, I get tired after like a couple hours, I get tired. It's that thing. It's like, I'm the energy of what I'm taking in and making sense of it, those processes inside, it's a real, you know, it's tacting in a sense in terms of the energy. So um, I think, does that relate to what you were saying? <laughs> it seemed, it came to my mind. So I should. Yeah. It. And you know, did you ever read the article by Nicholas Carr? It got circulated so widely in the Atlantic where he wrote, is Google making a stupid? That was the title of the article. Uh-uh. And oh, it was, but he's, he's a writer. And then he was talking about how his concentration has waned over the years. And so it was an investigation into why is that the case? And it is because we're so quick to look up information instead of sit in the fuzziness that is contemplation. And so that's the other thing that I think is really interesting about screenwriting or creative process in general is that it is forcing us to not get some sort of a snap answer, some sort of a draw from the outside world to pay attention to us, but you have to pay attention to yourself and the way in which you're perceiving things. And I think that that is so badly needed. And I'm thinking about it also because in one of your video clips from your lovely website, you were talking about writing for fun. And you said that money isn't, even if you never got paid for it, you would still continue to write. I was thinking about Socrates and Socrates says that what makes things good is not that we're pursuing fame or money and then everything will be fine. Like if I just make this much, then I'll be okay. If I just do this and I'll be okay. But when we focus on character and virtue and that development, then all good things will come. And that can show up in different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be financial, but that the finances or any kind of fame is a possible byproduct, but not actually the reason why you go into these kinds of pursuits. That's exactly right. The process as opposed to the outcome. And the paradox is the more engrossed we are and engaged we are in the process, 
the faster those outcomes actually come. The more we're freaked out about outcome. Oh, is this going to happen? Is this going to win this award? Blah, blah, blah. What's going to happen? Are they going to hate me? Blah, blah, blah. All that stuff actually takes us out of flow state and makes mm-hmm. it harder for us to create. When you're creating at your best, you're just open. You, you, you know that the good things are coming or whatever, but you're just wide open and you get really deep intuitive ideas. And that circles back to what you were saying before about needing to kind of sit with sort of the murkiness or the swampiness. That's a big part of the creative process and definitely developing like a sensitive endurance for staying with ambiguity and going, hmm, this is my story about this theme or that theme? Would this character really do this? Or what's this character's real driving goal here? And one of the biggest I see between sort of amateur creatives and professional creatives is the endurance or ability for professionals to sort of, to have that endurance to stay with the ambiguity, to sort of to notice that the doubts still come and the fear still comes, but they kind of sideswipe it faster. And then they just stay open and they then notice, okay, there's that really good intuitive idea and I put it in this box in my process. Here's the next box, bop, bop, bop. So it's the same process for the amateur and the professional. Professional just is more efficient and doesn't get thrown off as much. Speaking on that point and speaking about screenwriting in general, Brooks, there's a lot of books out there on screenwriting. In fact, I've seen a couple of your tweets and posts lately is, hey, followers of Brooks or people out there in the Twitterverse, uh, what are your favorite screenwriting books? It's very interesting because there are formulas, if you will, right? There's, you know, the save the cat formula. There's, there's the, well, by page 10, you have to have this. And by the end, here's the act one break. There is a formula, if you will, for screenwriting. Now, those formulas tend to be for films that get produced either by a big studio or even independent studios, uh, less so for the independent than there are for big studio uh, budget films. Well, it's taken me a while to accept, hey, look, if I want to get make this screenplay that I'm working on made, I, I got to stick within this formula. Like maybe there's a couple of screenplays that I write that are just for me that sit in the desk drawer that, you know, probably will never get made. But I needed to get that story onto the page in order to put out something that's more professional or that could be made. What do you tell people about the formula of screenwriting or what do you tell people about, you know, that that really do need to get whatever story that they need to onto the page so they can move on to truly more professional screenwriting. Like, is that a part of the process? You know, do you suggest certain books over the other? I know there's a lot of questions here, but I just like to hear your thoughts on it. It's a great question. I'll start with my own personal experience and then how I try to use that as a, a model for how other people can do it. When I started making movies after NYU, they tended to be very personal dramas. So I played soccer at NYU and then I made a movie about my friends on the soccer team at NYU. <laughs> very thinly veiled uh, fiction. Fine for what it was, but didn't quite, ma- you know, and it was in the ballpark of, of the way independent films were written and produced and directed in that era, in the, you know, early, mid 90s. But it didn't really make a splash. I didn't play Sundance, I didn't play Toronto. But people that saw it were like, oh yeah, this is actually pretty good. So there was an authenticity there, but it was a really tiny audience. Sure. Um, I took actually a couple of years off from the business and then came back and made another independent feature film and kind of did the same thing. It was another personal drama. It was in this subject matter that was in, in this world that I was really fascinated by in, in radical uh, education, but it was mostly a personal drama, <laughs> very kind of mopey and dour, um, but it was what I needed to make at the time. Right. And so again, people that saw it were like, oh, actually this isn't half bad for a movie I've never heard of, um, but almost nobody saw it. And so then I was like, well, how do I go from um, I've obviously got some, t- I've been fascinated with it my whole life. I've got some talent, but like, what am I doing as a sort of talented amateur that's different than the professionals? I had a meeting with a producer friend and he was like, well, write me a genre movie. And I was like, oh, 
I don't like genre movies. <laughs> I do these dramas, right? And then once I was like, well, hold on a second. And here's the key. There are some genre movies that I really love. And it was interesting that he was like, write me a genre movie. And my mind went to the stuff that I didn't like. Well, why? And then I started thinking about it more, reflecting. And I was like, hold on a second. What if I do the type of genre movie that I actually really do like? What if I do this broadly popular type of entertainment that also feels personal to me? And that changed everything. Then that one came together and it was, we were originally going to make that ourselves, me and the co-writer, but he was like, look, look, this thing came out so good. I think I can get it set up. Got me signed to UTA, got it sold. I mean, it just, but the significant thing for anybody that wants to go from talented amateur to professional, really in any sort of creative field is what do I already do that I like? And then what does the audience need? Because when, you, when you're telling a story at a high level, it's as intimate as writing a, a journal, like a memoir or whatever. You just, instead of like writing the journal for yourself and keeping it for yourself, you're expressing your feelings and ideas in a fictional metaphor that other people can relate to. So that feels like you're telling their story as well. And that's the difference. And when I was doing those personal dramas, it was so damn specific to my life. So the authenticity was good, but like, it was just too, too obscure for people to really relate to it. Then I used my same damn skills, but just basically added an alien invasion on top of the, the character work that I like to do anyway. And it just it exploded, right? So that's exactly what I do when I, when I work with other creatives. So, so in your case, you, you, it sounds like you, you've done a couple scripts and they were intent, you know, they were, they were personal, but you felt like, so what I would do if I was to coach you is I would sort of, the first step, what I do is I, I get them to list their favorite movies and favorite TV shows. Well, why? Because, you know, you could have, you know, at our age, we could have seen 100,000 different movies and shows, right? And yep. we probably have seen over decades, 5,000, 8,000 actual movies or episodes of shows. So of those, let's say 7,000, if we pick the 10 favorite films and the 10 favorite shows, that is a list that's so specific to your like, it's like your creative DNA. And once I know that at a person, I go, okay, this is this person's creative wheelhouse. And then from that, I help them dial in a project that's like that, but their own personal spin. And then from there, I just go, okay, well, here's, you can, if you want to write it obscure and do whatever you want, that's fine. But if you want to write it for a bigger audience, here's how you lean into story structure. And you kept using the word formula and, yeah. and that's often a word that people use, but I wouldn't use that word. What you get in those books in a lot of these different systems is you basically, you're getting these patterns of how humans respond to story. And why does that happen? Why did Aristotle talk about this in poetics thousands of years ago? The reason is we get bored <laughs> if, if there's not a beginning, middle and end. If it's just the same thing over and over and over, it's not quite as engaging because our life doesn't feel that way. Our life is centered, our existential experience is, I have a desire of some sort. I have a goal to sort of satiate the desire. And if there's conflict, it, I bring a lot of attention to it. So a, a specific example is I'm hungry. Uh, I go to the, the kitchen to see if I can get some food. There's no food, that's the conflict. Uh, now I gotta go to Trader Joe's and now the story grows. And then there's an adventure that happens at Trader Joe's or whatever, right? But that pattern of hero goal conflict is how we experience life all day long. So when you tell a story that is deeply in the groove of hero goal conflict, it's dialed in completely with those three basic elements, your story then hits harder. So when Blake Snyder says in his book, you need to change from beginning to middle or act one to act two on page 27, 
what he's basically saying, it's not a formula that you have to follow and that if you do it, you're going to sell, sell a script for a million dollars. What I invite you to do is read beneath that line and say, in general, we've got a whole history of, of drama that goes back hundreds of thousands of years. After about 27 minutes, humans get bored <laughs> of that one thing. So give them something else that progresses this whole damn idea for the next 45 minutes or, or an hour, and then give them another 20 minutes at the end. That's the most exciting part of all. That to me is the real human takeaway. You will move an audience more deeply in your own specific way if you do your version of beginning, middle, end. That's the core story structure. And you, yes, it gets more specific and he talks about page count, but like what I do with that specific page count, it's just a helpful reference, right? So if I write a first draft of, of a script and my change between the beginning and the middle, between act one and act two is on page 20, is that a good choice? Now I'm going against the grain of expectation. And now I know it because I read that book and I have that awareness. Is it better that I have a short beginning or have I actually gone, you know what? If I actually develop it a little bit more and let it go more towards the expectation, it's going to be a stronger story. But now I have that conscious option. The amateur doesn't. The amateur's like, well, I did it this way. This is how it really happened to me, or this is what I want. And they don't, they don't even really know if they're playing or they'll in a rebellious way say, well, the audience, they don't get me or, um, you know, they, there's a lot of drama. I, I, for me, it's like, I want the drama in the story, not in your process. And I just want you to be very aware of, so it's, so the formula feels like it's a little bit off, but what I do want you to know is there are deep psychological grooves of expectation. And I want you to be very mindful about when you play exactly to it and when you play against it. One last example, the, the movie that I made right after I left NYU that was about my college soccer buddies the idea there was I'm going to make this totally independent, whatever, but I didn't know shit about story structure, right? So I was rebellious against, I mean, I just went to, you know, NYU film school, but that's a school that's really about, right, you know, sort of directing. It's, it's sort of, you know, you write just so, so you can direct something. I knew nothing about story structure. I had a chip on my shoulder about it. So I basically kind of did an outline, got it together. If, <laughs> I would get feedback if people didn't like it. I was like, oh, they're jealous. And I, <laughs> I would just make it anyway. So I, I made it, and again, it was fine for what it was, but it was partly really flat. There was no story structure because I didn't really know much about it. And I justified it by saying, I want it to feel like an independent film. I don't want the big game at the end. I don't want right. that Hollywood bull crap. I want it to feel authentic. And what I didn't know at the time was, okay, fine. I had it. It was actually a really authentic feeling movie. But like, again, the Hollywood stuff I was referring to, I didn't have to make it like that. I could have made it like, something else. So the last script I actually just finished, which now has a, um, an Oscar winning producer, uh, you know, interested and probably attaching very soon, I thought was the opposite. I was like, can I make it as authentic to me as possible and hit every single Hollywood trope square down the middle, yeah. fastball down the middle, but still make it as authentic as my, the one I made when I was 22. And I did it right. And, and the way I did it was every trope, I didn't shy away from it. I went head on. I said, this is a trope because it's true about human experience. And here is my embarrassing personal truth about this sort of thing. And it was embarrassing and I felt shame about it and I revealed it, but it's in a fictional character. So like people see that and it brings up their own sort of feelings around that sort of thing. You can be that vulnerable in one of those tropes or cliches or whatever. They don't think about that. They're just thinking about the sort of the human part of it. So that's my thought about formula is that kind of stay away from that word and really think about the patterns that it's, why are they saying that? Because what I would do when I was starting out is I, 
I just was too rebellious for my own good. I would just be like, oh, I, I know better than this. I know, you know, whatever. I don't, and I would dismiss really good ideas that would have helped me realize my vision. And so over time, I, you know, I realized, okay, maybe I don't have all the answers. <laughs> maybe there's, there's input that I can, you know, maybe I was pushing away. It's good to hold on to our vision, but we want to find that balance of, because you don't want to take too much input, right? And you want to find that balance of the right amount of input and then the right amount of, no, 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 my vision is this. And I'm trying to realize this vision. And if you get the balance between those two, if you dismiss too much, it's a problem. If you accept too much, it's a problem. So you want that perfect balance of really good, high quality feedback that fuels your vision way beyond what, what you could do on your own writing in like a cave. And now a quick break to tell you about Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up the top trending articles on the web, topics that you can choose from at any given moment, and reads them to you in a natural human voice. The entire web becomes listenable for the first time all in one place. Browse articles from topics you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you like, from, let's say, philosophy, to sports, to tech, to business, to science, to Bitcoin. It will find the latest articles and read them to you aloud. And they have podcasts as well. Oh, thank goodness. You got to check out Good is in the Details, right? Explore trending podcasts like Good is in the Details from over 80 countries. Download and use Newsly for free right now. Newsly.me or from the link in the description and use the promo code THEDETAILS. All right, let's get back to the show with Brooks. If you're going to do screenwriting, get ready to be humble. I was just thinking humility. That's the. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is. It. I mean, it's it, it, humility. I mean, if you are an overly arrogant individual who thinks that you literally know all the answers, you don't need the books. You just need to know uh, proper screenwriting format and that's it. And you, you oh, I've seen 100,000 movies. I know how to write a movie. You're going to get crushed. It's interesting, though. I've heard of some screenwriters out there, like the screenwriter for Sicario. Um, I know there was like kind of like an interesting backstory, uh, his backstory about He's seen a bunch of movies. He saw the way films were kind of getting done and, and he decided to kind of do things his own way. But if you go and you look at a movie like Sicario, it's like it's like a perfect movie. It, it fits in all the formulas. I, I don't know that individual at all. I just I just know that he kind of had a very interesting approach to it. Probably is a humble person. He probably is, is a, a wonderful person. But there's some interesting people out there in the screenwriting world. And here's a quick thought about that: when writers that are working at a high level are not all that conscious about some of those early story design choices, like their concept, like their basic structure choices, they're just doing it intuitively and they're not quite aware of it. And they don't need to, frankly. They're so good at the latter stages of writing character and writing dialogue. And you know, behind me, I've got a, a poster of Full Metal Jacket by Stanley Kubrick. He was so good at sort of making observations. I mean, the, the, the structure of Full Metal Jacket is wonky as F. I mean, it, it's, it's a really weird, it's almost like two halves. His observations about life and that war in these extreme ways was so fascinating that he, in my mind, overcomes wonky story structure. And in fact, I bet you, it's one of my favorite movies, right? It's fine exactly the damn way it is, except that I bet you could restructure that movie and actually make it more compelling to more people. You wouldn't lose any of the greatness with it if you actually adjust the structure. Now, Kubrick was the best. I mean, he he knew exactly what he was doing. I still feel like, um, and again, my favorite movie, so you, you can't get better than your favorite, right? But in terms of the principles, as I understand them, his wonky structure didn't, it actually succeeds despite that, not because of that. 
And that's the thing that Fs up a lot of amateurs because they'll go, well, look at Full Metal Jacket. They didn't, you know, I'm going to have crappy story structure or unsensible or, you know, story structure that doesn't quite make sense. It's off balance because Full Metal Jacket did it. But that's not why Full Metal Jacket's good. Full Metal Jacket is good despite the unusual structure, in, in my opinion. I could be wrong, but, um, you know, obviously I'm arguing against a legend and my favorite movie. But I feel confident about that because I've written 40 screenplays myself. I've seen the reaction to different things. I've seen a skillion amateur scripts and I help people move from that thing. So from my perspective, structure is, again, because it's not like, oh, the right way or the rule. It's the way human beings function, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm referring to. And he was so good at observations that he overcame the truism that if you build a certain way with a certain structure and you do it with authenticity you can get amazing roles. What happens with people like Kubrick and other people, they're so fiercely devoted to the artistry of the latter choices in the process. They don't even need good story structure. That's how great they are. But if they did both, it would take it to a new level. They're so sensitive about it coming across like a trope or fake or whatever. So they, you know, follow those instincts and stay away from it. And that's fine. In my mind, there's actually a, a more pure version of Fomo Jacket that at least I would like better. And I think actually would have an even bigger audience and would, would be even more legendary if that's even possible. Something that I had read one time about if you ever feel stuck, think of a rule and break it in writing. And um, I remember one time I did that. I did a flash fiction and I thought, you know, the rule is don't use cliches. And I wrote a flash fiction that was pure cliche. It was called A Girl Named Cliche. And it was fun. It got published. It was just a flash fiction. So I'm wondering in terms of genre, I mean, I know we're talking about Kubrick, but is there another example or of where somebody broke a rule, it was intentional in a genre and it actually worked? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. The idea is, and I think what you did in your, your case was you found some authenticity within the cliche, right? And that's the magic. And that, you know, is actually kind of a meta, meta story almost, right? And so well, let's back it up. What is genre? Genre is basically a promise to the audience around a certain set of elements. Generally, you know, it can be setting, tone, some of the character arcs, some of the basic expectations. So in a broad sense, if the genre is comedy, they are expecting to laugh. If the genre is horror, they're expecting to be scared. Thriller is tension. Action is excitement. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Nope is a movie that's out now that I haven't seen, but I want to. But just from what I've seen of it, he's bending the rules a little bit. And he's gotten to the point, partly because he did all that amazing comedy early in his life, Jordan Peele, where he has a feel for his audience. He knows how far he can kind of take them this way. He knows what they're expecting. What we want is a surprise. We want sort of like you know, something that we want, but we didn't quite see it happening that way. And so he, at his level of the craft, is masterful and sort of giving you the genre stuff about scary movie, but doing it in a way that feels fresh and different. And that's ultimately what we're looking for. We're looking for the same, but different. And he's at a point in his mastery of the craft where at first thought you might be like, oh, that's weird. That's not going to work or whatever. And he knows you're going to have that expectation. He's thinking he moves ahead of you and then he plays to it. That's what Kubrick was known for as well. Like when 2001 came out, there was a lot of critics and even fellow filmmakers are like, this thing's a boring piece of garbage. Well, how could that be? And there are other people that were just like, oh man, it was amazing. But like, you see a lot of people that were like, yeah, I didn't actually catch on how far ahead Kubrick was and what he was actually doing. Again, kind of a wonky structure. You know, that was absolutely a movie about existentialism of humanity. And like a big topic for a, for a, for a popular movie. And yet people, they see a certain thing and they dismiss it. 
but he was like, he wanted that movie to, to sort of you to experience it like a symphony, not so much like in your head, not like a typical thing. So in that case, actually, his unusual structure might actually have been a little better than a, a little more traditional sort of progression. Full Metal Jacket, I think, was different. But so those are a few examples of, of people that are sort of they're understanding that relationship they have to the audience in such a way so that they still give them enough of what they expect and want but they deliver in a way that's authentic and fresh and surprising. So it has the right amount of different. If it's too different, if it's like an experimental movie, people ignore it. If it's too similar, we've seen it a million times, it's boring. What you want is that beautiful, very deep balance between the same but different. And in fact, if you actually look at all of your favorite films and shows for your particular sensibility, you could probably define how that particular show or film is exquisitely the same but different for you yeah one of my favorites is Shakespeare in Love Tom Stoppard's film and when I think about it it was just so it was so brilliant and I felt like I was on an inside joke and at the same time he did form you know follow the formula and I just um I absolutely loved it but I was gonna say nope you have to you have to see Jordan Peele is it is such a bizarre film and I couldn't stop thinking about it and it's new and also gives this nod to the classics which I think he also did in Get Out. It's so bizarre, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Agreed in a good on, way. Agreed on Nope. I, uh, it was better than I was expecting, and it wasn't what I was expecting, so I was really pleased. In fact, all the teasers and everything. Uh, Gwen, don't say the word formula. That was basically uh, one thing that I took away from Brooks. Oh. Brooks, if, there, if, there's, if there's what... No, no, I get... No, I, I, yeah. I'm totally teasing on that. I would like to say, okay, so our audience is comprised... We have, we have somewhat of a diverse audience, if you will. Gwen uses these podcasts in her as part of her teaching at the various universities where she teaches philosophy. Okay, I've spoken several times about the power of creativity, why I think people should not say that they're not creative, that that's one of the most dangerous things that an individual can say to themselves if they put that into their brain. But if you were talking to somebody out there who's never written a screenplay, never tried to write a story, never done that, has in their brain, I'm not a creative person. How do you strongly suggest to somebody to start writing and why? What can it do? Like what, how can I get like my wife who's absolutely convinced that she could never do write screenplays or write a story. She's like, I don't have that in my brain. And I'm like, that's crazy. I watch all these movies with you get things faster than I do. You should write something someday. Like, how, what, how do you tell the non-believer that this is a vitally important thing for them to do? Whew. It's that, it's a big question and it's a heartbreaking one um, because I told you that that the subject matter, the setting of that second feature that I wrote, directed, and produced was about a radical education system that I strongly believe in for this exact reason. We are all born creative, right? We are. Amen. Um, yes. When you, when you look at a, a, a one-year-old or a two-year-old, they are completely open to something bigger than us. And they're just, they're in the moment. They're not thinking about consequence. They're just like, I'll try this. I'll try that. Oh, I'll do this. I mean, it's, it's nutty how sort of open and creative they are, right? So what happens? How could a human being be in that state and not retain that level of at least a sensible version of their openness and creativity? In my opinion, traditional education smashes it out of us. Absolutely effing smashes it out of us with good intentions. Like I, I had very nice teachers. They absolutely did their best. It's a really difficult scenario because it's based on this flaw model that like the human is this empty cup and you got to pour in the stuff into their head. And if they don't know how to read, write and do math, they're going to be in trouble. 
right? And they look all this illiteracy. It's, it's, and the truth is, it's not how human beings work. And these, there's schools out there that allow the students to basically structure their own education system on demand. And put it another way, it's recess all day long. And so you're like, what? How could that be? How could a kid who's not told to do this and tested and blah, 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 how do you know that kid's going to be able to read and write and whatever? Except that in truth, every kid that goes to those schools learns how to read, write and do everything and perfectly fine. They turn out to be lawyers and doctors and whatever. How does that work? You couldn't do it on the street, right? Because people on the street really are illiterate, right? Unless they really go after it. You have to put them into a, like a vibrant, intellectually curious community so that in conversation, they're having this, this, and that. People start referencing graphic novels and comic books and video games. And at a certain point, maybe age five, maybe age seven or whatever, but they're like sick of playing their favorite video game and not being able to read what's on screen. And then in those schools, they go and they go, you know, staff member, tell me, how, how do you read? Tell me. And they go, okay, well, let's. And then on demand, the staff member takes that person and maybe two or three other people that are ready and teaches them how to read in like a week or two weeks. Easy breezy. Same thing with math. In fact, the whole theory that like, yeah, reading, writing, and math is so fundamentally important. Yeah, of course it is. So obviously it is. And so it's so damn obvious that it's important. Any reasonable human being, when they see how damn valuable it is, is going to choose to learn it. You don't have to force them. And so I get so frustrated about it is because we have this profoundly effing problematic idea that you need to force a human being to learn subject X in this order, in this time of day, their existence is structured for them. And that fundamentally wrecks their soul. And it takes somebody like your wife who was created from the jump and they smash that creativity out of her to the point where she's an adult and she feels like she can't write a damn story. Drives me freaking crazy. I agree with that. I was, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about just the other day, I need to, I was struggling for an idea for a paper that I needed to submit. And I had to, you know, I had to step out to go out for a walk. And my friend said, what, what, you're, why are you going out for a walk? Don't you need to write? And I was like, this is the writing. <laughs> this is what it is. Sure. And a same thing with, reading, I read a lot of fiction for fun. So I read academic texts, but I also read fiction, but it's not just, that is my recess that is allowing for me to think that when I spend a lot of time being sucked into a novel and I am a total sucker for the mystery genre, that is actually what then allows me to sit down and to produce is that if I give my mind that time to focus on a story and what I think about it is this is why I think it's so important. I, there was a, actually a philosopher who was talking, I can't remember her name, but was talking about why reading is so important for thinking. Because when you are reading a story, even though you're not going to walk into a job interview and explain the great Gatsby to somebody, but what stories do is that it does assist in your logic because you have to keep in mind the characters and every chapter has to be new, but has to logically follow the one before. Yeah. And so it's, and it also enhances empathy. And this is why I think, you know, you're spot on with the need for tapping into creativity, that that is actually what will fuel all of these other areas. And we're naturally curious. So there's yeah. no need to force somebody. In fact, it wrecks it. It's exactly what happens. So, you know, Bob Dylan said it, 20 years of schooling and they put you on the day shift, right? And mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's it, and again, it's not malicious. It's not a conspiracy. People are trying to do the right thing. And here's the thing. The real sort of primal value, I think, in the educational system 
is just keeping the kids safe and letting the parents do their thing. Because if they really were, were following the intention, what, what should be the intention of early education? Prepare them to be full, functioning, productive, happy citizens of society. If that's your intention, this factory system that we have makes no goddamn sense. The truth is the biggest desire collectively for, edu for traditional education is keep the kids safe enough and occupied enough. Yeah. I always tell my students for philosophy, I say, my goal is for you to enjoy your lives, that we're reading this material. And then when it comes to term papers, I open it up where they can write about whatever they want so that that way they can be drawn to it. The only requirement is that it has to be researched and they have to connect it to something from the syllabus in the 15 weeks, something that we read. And I have had like discussions about or do we have free will or determinism? And I've had students write about episodes of Black Mirror. And I say that works. Or when we talk about what does it mean to be a good man? What does it mean to be a good person? I've had some papers. God, what was the Blood Diamond, that film? Yeah. Somebody analyzed, used Aristotle to analyze the three main characters to determine whether or not they were good. And then they also researched on what is Blood Diamond. Let me ask you a quick question. When you, because I, you know, you, I, Professor, I'm sure you've taught a lot of different classes. When you have an assignment like that, where they get to pick mm -hmm. what they've learned based on what, you know, syllabus plus their own personal interest, what is your level of interest in reading that paper versus a more traditional paper, which is we had to study this book and you have to give me a report on that book. And pretty much everybody's doing the same damn report. In your reading experience or your TA's reading experience, which one is more enjoyable for you? So I started doing this out of selfish reasons. <laughs> it was because if I said you need to write about X, the papers were boring as hell and I couldn't get through them. As soon as I turned it over to write, give me an argument about something you find interesting. And a lot of it is film analysis. So, and, so let's, and let, let, let me make yeah. a point about that. So, so what you did really beautifully was you honored your real feelings and like, this is boring as hell. But if I do it this way, you know, interesting to you, right? And it's more interesting to them. That's yeah. what I'm saying. That's what, why the, the traditional education from the beginning, it's not fun for those teachers to force those kids to learn stuff they're not interested in. They're not interested. So it's this whole big kabuki theater of we're doing something important when everybody knows it's not. What's much more important is them. And why do they choose movies? Because movies are, a, it's really you have to be amazingly good at storytelling to be able to get paid a lot of money to write a screenplay and to, to go through all the hoops to get it produced, right? So you're mm -hmm. talking about the best, the best, the best, the best screenwriters. And so they are really good at anchoring in emotion and theory and moving people in a certain way. So your students are could choose anything and they're choosing some great TV shows and great films because they are evoking thought and feeling at a very high level. And if that's what they're most interested in, the, the subjects that you're talking about, those are now, they're productizable. So they could take that paper or a variation of that paper and do a post online and build a community around their own personal understanding and love of that. Because then they have this nexus of, I'm interested in philosophy. I'm interested in applying these aspects of philosophy. I love this philosopher and that one. Now I'm going to do how that person is actually, uh, I could read Blood Diamond or this popular movie around that. That nexus, you know, there's 7 billion people or whatever it is, 9 billion people on the planet, but there are probably 100,000 people that are fascinated in that particular nexus, right? Yeah. Maybe not that many, but maybe 10,000. But whatever that is, 
we are in a place because of the internet where you can find a tribe that is so into the same specific things that you are. That's what I see you doing here. You, you, you step away from that factory sort of system into a more capitalist driven system so that you were more interested. They were more interested and it's a win-win. Yeah. And so, it, and they're you, more thoughtful, right? They want to do the research on what they think is interesting. And I say, here's a word count minimum. They always go over it. Yeah. Storytelling after like fire, like being able to sort of corral fire is probably one of the most significant technologies that human beings have found. How did the wisdom of the tribes 200,000 years ago get passed along, but through story? You know, when it gets dark, here's why it's getting dark. When we're able to sort of hunt or gather, here are some stories around how we do that. It was more pass onable in generations when it was a good story than when they just kind of listed some facts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Why? Because of the way the human brain works. Hero, goal, conflict. That's how we perceive our existence. And so it's not an accident that stories happen. It happens because that's the deepest way. That's where we really remember something when we put it into a story. So 200,000 years ago, humans were milling around. They had to figure out what, what's going on. What happens when we die? What happens at night? What All the basic questions. And they came up with, that's what mythology, that's what religion came from. They just were, mm -hmm. they were telling stories the best they could with what they could see and perceive. And that's how it would get passed along. At a certain point, they could go, not only can we verbally share these stories, now we can actually write them down. And then it was even more significant. Um, and then after writing it down, you're really looking at the printing press in what, the 1600s, where it was like, now you can really scale out story and narrative and ideas. And then probably the next next biggest thing could really can be the internet because now anybody can access almost anybody else. I mean, that is an infinitesimal, amazing thing. So that's why going back to your, your student in your class could make a whole career out of his or her passion for Kant or whatever philosopher, plus this other movie that he or she loved and the nexus of that, maybe some other, whatever her individual idiosyncratic passions are, there is a business behind that because there's a whole community of people that are interested in that nexus. Maybe not all three of them, but maybe two of them, enough of them for her to basically be in her passion all day long, serving her people at the highest level possible. Why? Because she's so damn passionate about it's what she wants to think about anyway. And so that's what the internet at this stage of humanity has given us. You really can find such a specific niche of people who will pay you top dollar for your passions, but we still have this traditional educational system that's from that factory model where it just quashes creativity. It quashes any sort of connection to real marketplace demand with this harebrained idea that jumping through these set of hoops that are random that everybody knows are effing random, except some circle in some state says, oh, no, 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 these are important subjects. Well, based on what? I mean, based on nothing, a bunch of meaningless hoops and busy work, but that's the standard to the point where, you know, Rudy's wife in a heartbreaking way is obviously insightful about storytelling and doesn't feel comfortable enough just telling a story. I mean, it breaks my goddamn heart. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, Brooks, thank you so much. This is just great. You're so passionate. This is just lovely. Uh, I, I love it. And I, I just, I want to say thank you for taking the time. Yeah, really thank you so much. You're, we learned a lot. Welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I, I want to give you guys a shout out too, because you know, I, I do a significant amount of speaking in, in different places, but like literally 
you know, a minute of hearing one of your shows, I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in. These guys are great. You guys are just, you're, oh, you're doing, you. you're doing discourse at a really high level, fascinating questions, totally present, um, really fascinating discussion. So um, thank you for having me on. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwen Landowski and Rudy Sallow. Thank you, Brooks, so much for a wonderful episode. Thank you to our sponsors, Magic Mind and Newsly. Be sure to check out our show notes so that you can get your discount codes. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash good is in the details. Join our book club, get extra content. I have a great clip from Brooks's latest episode. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. Or take a screenshot of your favorite episode and tag us on Instagram, good is in the details pod. We're also on Twitter, Rudy's in charge of that, in the details pod. We're also on Facebook, good is in the details pod. If you'd like to sponsor a show or reach out because you have questions, we've all got questions or comments or compliments, good is in the details pod at gmail.com. Okay, until next time. Bye.